Okay, if you want to turn to Genesis uh, 50, chapter 50, verse 15, we'll look at the last two paragraphs in Genesis. But before we get there, I just wanted to, uh, if, if you're sitting there and you can see a handout that says R828, all things for good, pull that out and we'll just do a quick review. Especially if you're just joining us today, you'll see uh, just where have we been for the past two years. Now, obviously, we've taken some breaks, uh, but we come to the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, it is Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem. And so if you were wanting to read something about that in your Bible this week, that's where you would start his triumphal entry. And then if you flip that over, you see we're going to end the book of beginnings today. Next week's sermon will be uh, on Jesus since it's Easter. That ought to be fun. And if you open it up, you'll see just where have we been over these past two years. January 9th, 2011 is when we began. Uh, and if you were going through the book or going through the Bible, we're just 72 pages in. But we began with building a biblical worldview, uh, all from Hebrews 11:3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created, not evolved by the word of God, not some random act of a big bang. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So we believe that there is a God who exists. He created the world. He created uh, man and woman. And that's what we covered that first section. Uh, If you notice the blue uh, sections are the literary divisions of the book. I won't go over those, but I did want to go rather quickly, chapter by chapter. So you see where we are. God created the world spectacular in chapter one. God created man and woman special in chapter two. And in chapter three, you see man and woman sin against God. But in that very same chapter, you see that God gives a promise that he will come and crush Satan. And Satan will injure uh, the one to come, but Satan will be put to death. And I find it interesting when it says God created man and woman. Because if you paid any attention to the news lately, that the marriage between man and a woman is uh, becoming extinct in our culture. Uh, but I would have one question for my friends who don't believe in uh, man and woman as the divine way for marriage. Why in the world, whether you believe in creation and evolution, and we don't believe in evolution, but whatever you believe, why in the world is there a difference in gender? That is the question they need to answer for me. Why in the world is there a difference in gender? Because if you go down that road, if you have paid attention to the article I sent last week in the weekly email, uh, it leaves you wondering what in the world they're building their theories on. They're building it on selfishness and sin, and that sees itself in chapter 4, that sin has spread throughout the world. Chapter 5, God promised rest in a dying world. That was the chapter where it says, and he died. And he died and he died, except for one man, Enoch, walked with God and God took him. Chapter six, God was grieved on the on the ongoing human rebellion. That is the idea that it says in that chapter, there was only evil in their heart continually. And that God provided in chapter seven, a way of salvation, that God would judge the world in chapter eight, that he saved his chosen people in chapter nine. And he began again with the new uh, people in the ends with the world still rebels. But that section there says four or five things. It tells us where we came from. It tells us why we're here. It tells us where we're going. It tells us what went wrong. And it tells us the solution 
to the problem. A very crucial part of the Bible. Genesis 1-11. through And then we did a little series, Growing Strong in Faith. Lessons from the Life of Abraham. We looked at uh, uh, how Abraham moved from a, a man who followed God, but then failed to follow God, but then followed God. And he ended up trusting so much in the Lord, he'd give his only son. We take uh, Romans 4.20. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. That God called Abraham to follow him. And he did it imperfectly, but he did. And he trusted God and he lived as a peacemaker. In 14, we saw him go down and snatch his nephew out of the fire that God communicated his covenant to him in 15. And that for a couple chapters, Abraham would live in the flesh. He would lie. Uh, God would give him this promise, but instead of trusting God and consulting God and saying, God, how do you want me to go about it? He lived in his flesh. He lied and he failed to lead his family. Then God provides Abram with a new name. Abraham, Abram would become Abraham, the father of many nations. He gave him a picture and a promise. God communicated the promise to Sarah. Remember when she first heard that promise? So unbelievable that this time next year you'll have a kid. What did she do? She laughed. And God, understanding Sarah's heart, not that it was, he said, why did Sarah laugh? She said, I did not laugh. And he goes, oh, but you did. So God sees everything. But he gave a promise that he would bring her a child. From her own body. And in that same chapter, he interceded for Lot. Great chapter on prayer. How Abraham reasoned with the Lord in prayer. And then he rescued, God rescued Lot in response to Abraham's prayer. Abraham lived in the flesh and he trusted himself again. But then God begins to fulfill his promise that he brings that son in 21. And then you see right there was a change in Abraham's life. In 22, he lives by faith, willing to sacrifice his own son. That God told him to go and give his one son, his one and only son. And he went, trusting that God would provide. And he lived by faith, faith, securing the land for the future. He lived by faith, ensuring the promise continued on in the family. And he ended his life in faith as both his family and his enemies grew in number. And that brings us to the section that we covered last fall, from wrestling with God to resting in God. You saw the life of Jacob. Uh, And it begins with the life of Isaac. He's a great character in the Bible, but not one that gives much press, only one chapter. He lived imperfectly, but faithfully, reclaiming the land and making peace. And then you see him pass on the blessing to Jacob, his deceptive son. And because he did that, you remember that one sermon that Jacob left and he was running. Fear was behind him. The unknown was in front of him. Darkness was above him. And he had to put his head down on a stone, hardness below him. And God came to him in that night. God spoke to him and God saved him. Then Laban deceives Jacob. The deceiver got deceived. But in all of that, Jacob's family multiplies. He flees Laban. And then you see that second time God came to him. That Jacob wrestles with God. Not like the wrestling that some of you and I grew up with. Right? Not WWF style. There was no mask. But that night, um, Jacob wrestled with God. And God said, not only have I saved you, but I will break you because I want you to follow me. And from that point on, just like his uh, grandfather Abraham, Jacob reconciles with his brother and then he learns to rest in God. And that brings us all the way up to all things for good. And we're basing that off the verse in Romans 8.28. We know God works all things for good for those who love him and who are called by his name. And we're looking at God's providence. We're looking at how God worked with Joseph. It's been a good little series on 
understanding the providence of God, that he moves everything according to his will. And I want to quote to you a a hymn just as the opening illustration for this sermon. Uh, It came as John Newton. You remember John Newton because he he put together the song Amazing Grace. Looked at that last week. Uh, He also put together the song How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. But there was a guy that John Newton, the pastor, ministered to. He was a depressed man. He was very melancholy. He didn't think he could survive this world. And John Newton went to him through the ministry of visitation and saw that this man had a great poetic gift. And this man was William Cowper. He wrote, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. And he also wrote this hymn, uh, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And I want to read it to you and give you some comments on it. I've done it before. But I'll do it again. It's that good of a hymn to talk about the providence of God. It should be up there. God moves in mysterious ways. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. That's the idea that you and I may not understand why God does what he does. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That's the idea that though we may not understand, he's in absolute control. And this very next verse is just This is the richest verse, at least for me at this time. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. That we could we cannot plumb the depth of just how magnificent, how wise, how wonderful our God is. He treasures up his bright designs and he works his sovereign will. So it's mysterious to us. We don't know why he does what he does sometimes, but it's skillful. It's rich. It's a treasure. And then it moves on to us. So it begins with God as it should. And it moves to us. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Now here's where that is absolutely true. Here's where America gets it wrong. Here's where the world gets it wrong. And even the American church. We think, okay, we're going to go through some some dark times, some storms, and the blessings will come. Well, they will come ultimately, but maybe not immediately. And so that's where we miss it sometimes. Is Those are coming, but for some of us, it may be the day when you see Jesus uh, coming in the clouds in the air, when you're raptured. That may be when those blessings start to come. But until then, the next verse says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides his smiling face. Um, interesting, yesterday, the weather in, in Colorado is fun in the spring, isn't it? It's cold, it's dark, and then it snows all day yesterday, and you think the day's ending, then you just get this glimmer of light, this sunshine. You're like, wow. And that's a picture, at least for me, it was a parable. There may be snowy days, and we like snowy days here, obviously, but there may be snowy, cold days when you're your clothes don't work or whatever, and uh, you're wondering, am I? is it ever going to warm up? And then he gives you a little sun at the end of the day. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. That, if you wanted a verse to capture, a, a non-scriptural verse to capture the life of Joseph, there it is. His purposes will ripen fast. You know, he went from a prison to a palace in in an afternoon. As long as it took him to shave his beard, take a shower, put on some new clothes, he was 
prisoner and then the prime minister. Unbelievable how God works. What does the world think? Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. There are people I know, and I talk to them, and they look out there, and they're like, really, God's at work? Look at the world. Look at all the de- destruction, the demolition. How, how can God be working? Well, he's at work, but your blind unbelief is sure to err, and you'll scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at God's interpretation of man's sin. As I asked earlier, turn with me to Genesis 50, chapter 50, verse 15. I'll pray and then we'll walk right through this. Father, this is your word. It's absolutely true. There's no errors in it. And Father, you, you speak to us now through your word. I pray that you'd keep me from error. This would just be a joyful sermon and we would all be encouraged in our faith. Lord, I don't want us to forget, though, that you can do this every minute of every day. Should we just take your word and like the Thessalonians believe it's not just the word of man, but it's your word. It will perform its work in us. Pray now as we look at these final two paragraphs, we would be encouraged in our faith to live well, to die well, and to leave a legacy of love. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you want a big picture, the providence of God in 15 through 21 and the purpose of man, 22 through 26. And we begin in 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, now obviously they're not speaking to Joseph, but they're speaking among themselves. It may be it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Oh, how soon people forget forgiveness of man. And so they work out of fear. This is the fear of man. They have not yet learned what forgiveness is. They have not yet learned to trust God fully and completely. Not in a salvific way, but they have not learned to relate to their brother. So in 16, they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. That is called a lie. That is not what his father did. And so when we fear humans, that leads to sin. In this one, it manifests itself in a lie. But that is a great uh, principle just to learn. It's kind of a side note. This isn't even up on the screen, but it comes to mind. Proverbs 29:25 is in the Bible somewhere. There it is. Proverbs 29:25. Listen to these words. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So the principle here, these gentlemen feared man. They feared that Jacob would take them out. And so they uh, made up a lie. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now... These are the brothers. Please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, of your father. And so they lie. They say, Joseph's not, he's going to turn on us. He's, he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. He's going to turn on us and he's going to kill us. Look at Joseph's response to their, his untrusting brothers. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph wept. 
know what? Leaders are hurt when those they lead don't trust them. If you're a leader in here, if you lead in any sort of way, and you know those you're leading and doing the best to serve, if they don't trust you, it hurts. And that's what Joseph thinks here. He's, he's weeping. He's like, did they just forget? Now, he wouldn't say chapter 45 because chapter, it's not the way he's relating. But did they just forget chapter 45 when I told them? And I revealed myself to them and I wept on their neck. It said for a long time. Did they, did they forget that? That, that they, they were out to get me and instead of punishing them as I could have done as the prime minister of Egypt, but I provided for them. And he weeps. Notice what his brothers do next in verse 18. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, if you were to go back to 30, chapter 37, verse 7, Joseph said, I had a dream, and one day your sheaves will be bowing down to mine. This is the actual physical fulfillment of what he said. They are literally falling down before him, prostrated in worship, and said, Behold, we are your servants. He's, he's weeping because they don't trust the action that he did with them earlier and forgave them and provided for them and gave them the best land in Egypt. They still don't trust. But look what he does here. Something magnificent. Something very humble in 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You guys are on your face in worship before him and he, before me. And he says, Whoa, 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 whoa. There's only one person we bow down before. You, you see it in the book of uh, Revelation where, they, where I think John sees an angel and he bows down in worship before him and the angel says, oh no, I, I am not God. And that's what Joseph does here. Oh, I'm not in the place of God. He doesn't accept their worship of him. Only God is worthy of worship. Amen? Only God is worthy of worship because only He is the one who knows everything and judges justly and impartially. Only God is worthy of worship. And then it comes to the greatest verse in the book of Genesis outside of verse 1 of chapter 1. Amen. I think that's the greatest verse to begin any discussion of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Time, prime mover, prime action, heavens and earth, space and matter. That's what he did. That's what separates Christians from the rest of the world is that we believe there is a God who created the world and that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There are other religions that believe that. We would go one step further and say because of man's sin, God sent for this son, his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have an everlasting life. But outside of that verse in Genesis, this is the greatest verse. Because this is the verse that wraps up all that we've been talking about. This is Romans 8, 28, before there was an even a Paul. Look at Genesis 50, 20. Here his brothers are on their uh, faces before him. He says, in a sense, get up. I am not in the place of God. You do not worship me. And he explains to him everything, everything that's happened in his life in one succinct statement. As for 
has for you. You meant evil against me. But God. Can I just tell you I went and did a little. There, there are six pages of verses of that phrase in the Bible. But God. It's not on the overhead, but just listen to. I, I just picked out ten of them. But you could go get six pages of but God. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God. Saul sought David every day. But God did not give him into his hand. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. In Acts 10 verse 40 and Acts 13 verse 30, it talks about the death and the leaving of Jesus there. But God raised him on the third day. But God raised him from the dead. Romans 5 talks about that we were helpless, ungodly sinners. And Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us. While we were helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies. Enemies. But God. Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the power of this world, but God. And here, Joseph says, you meant, you are accountable, you are responsible, you did this in your own will, no one coerced you, you're not a robot, you meant evil against me, but God. God meant it for good. Good? That's what it says. Good. A man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps, says Proverbs 16.9. It is the puzzling, perfect plan of God. It is a perfect paradox. You mean to tell me, Judge, you're saying the Bible is telling me right here and now that all the sin in the world God has allowed, yet He's working it for good to those who love Him and are called by His name? Yes. That is exactly what I'm saying. You mean to tell me we're not robots and we're doing all, all things in our own power and our own mindset and, and whether it be for the glory of God or for our own selfish gain, but God is working it out in His own sovereign plan. I am absolutely saying that with confidence. And I'm hoping, I've seen a few heads nod. I would love to see all heads nod and go, that blows me away. You mean I don't need to get all worried when I see on the news all that's happening in the world? No. I don't know why I just did that, but. You mean to tell me that your, your, God took your dad in 1996 and what looks like a tragedy for your mother and for you and your brother, but God was working all things to good. I, that's what I'm telling you. With full confidence. With great joy. You mean to tell me all the pain that I've experienced in my life I love Jesus, but all the pain he, I've experienced in my life, God's working that for good. That, that's what I'm telling you. Let me just make it even more biblical. That is what God is telling you. 
That is what Joseph told his brothers. You meant, that means your decisions, your actions, the way you did these things, you meant it for evil. Let's just review on this handout here. Uh, God gave Joseph dreams. Joseph is loved by his father. He's hated by his brothers. He's left for dead. Picture of Jesus. God blesses Joseph's faithfulness. Joseph is falsely accused. He goes from a pit and then to prison. But God's working all that to good? He is. And notice, same language. You meant, God meant. You did this, but God's working it according to His sovereign plan. But does that make me a robot? No. Sure doesn't. Is it a paradox? A perfect one. Is there tension? Trinitarian tension, if you want to call it that. I'd say Joseph was a New Testament man in Old Testament times. I think I have 1 Peter 4.19 up there. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you think Joseph did that? He entrusted his soul to a faithful creator while doing good, though he suffered according to the brother's will? No. Pharaoh's will? Mm Mm-mm. God's will. Wow. That, that is all things for good. To those who love Him and are called by His name, I will go on to say, those who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are not called by His name, God is not working their good for them. He's not. He will destroy those who are wicked. But if you're here today, and you're physically ill, you're financially poor, you're emotionally spent, you're relationally strained, through your own work or through others' work against you, understand there is a but God that should give you great hope. But God. What that means for us is two things, that we act absolutely hold at the same time and we do not deny Mankind is 100% responsible for their actions. And it's all working to God's sovereign plan. And we should be horrified by evil. Horrified by evil. Just read an article this week about a young man who shot some people and in court he was lewd, he was crude, he was satanic. Horrified by that evil. And hopeful in God. Not hopeful in God as some sort of Pollyanna, this really isn't happening, evil's an illusion. Not horrified by evil, like where's God and what is happening, but horrified by evil and hopeful in God. That we will address sin as sin is. And we will articulate the hope and the solution to that problem. So Joseph says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Notice, to bring about that many people should be kept alive, i.e., that's you. (laughs) He doesn't say that, but that's just a little commentary. I don't know how to spell that on a tweet, but that's you. (laughs) That's you. As they are today. Loved by his father, hated by his brothers, left for dead, only to rise 
from what they thought was death to be the savior of the known world at that time. So here's what he says. So do not fear. See, that fear of man led them to lie and try to concoct a story. He says, don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. He could have easily have said, I have provided. Did you forget that Joseph is a humble man? He said, I'll provide for you and your little ones. It's the promise of Joseph. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Despite what happened to me, I was 17 year old. I was left in a pit. You guys sold me, sold me into slavery for money. You go home and you falsify my death and you sit there and you watch my father weep and you console him as if I'm dead. And all the while, I'm sold, I do my best, I remain faithful, I'm falsely accused of rape, I'm put into prison, I do God's work there and interpret dreams, I'm forgotten. And then it's at one time I happen to be remembered. I tell the dream to Pharaoh. Pharaoh then exalts me. I come up with a good business plan to save the world by God's grace. I can see him saying this. But he doesn't go on and boast about himself. I'll provide for you. I'll provide for you. Don't fear. See, Joseph had a proper understanding of God's providence. When you and I understand God's providence, we will, pro- we will persevere with joy and will prosper others. We will persevere with joy. We'll say, you know what? I don't get it, but I'm going to enjoy it. I don't know why this happened. I don't know what's going on with my body, etc., etc., but I'm going to find joy. And... I'm going to prosper others. I have a big picture mentality. That's what we're trying to develop in my kids. Have a big picture mentality of God. He is so big. He's so mighty that, that you know what? Those Legos, they're going to be okay if you share them with your brother and sister. But it's, it's starting at this age to give them a big picture. Those Legos aren't going to grow legs and go away and just disappear. But have a big picture mentality of God. That you can share your belongings with others. And as you get older and you become adults, you can provide for others. You can do great things. And God's going to take care of you. I'll take care of you and your little ones. I'll take care of you. And so in 22, Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. 17, he's turned over. He's forgotten. The best years of his life. 20 years. He's forgotten, but he doesn't quit. And what where some would say he's he's done, he's he's now up in close to 40. He says, I'm just starting. And then from then for another 70 years. He lives and prospers Egypt in 23. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. And the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. I love that. I love that. Here's a father 
who gets to see the third generation. Gentlemen, say a prayer to outlast your parents and to outlast your wife and so you can see the next generation. I think about this. I've got my in-laws in town and they get to see their grandchildren. My father never got to see his grandkids. Pray for that, that you get to see not just... I. This is what I'm praying. I'm praying this. Praying that you guys stay alive a little bit longer so you can see Luke's kids. Wouldn't that be cool? I'm praying that I outlast my wife so that I can do her funeral. You want me to do that? I'd love to do that. I'd love to do her funeral. You can come up with the songs, hymns, verses. We'll do that. But to, I, I want to see I want to see Luke's kids, kids, and with the modern medicine and I don't know. I'm just, but I want to see. I want. I'd love to see that, and it could happen. And then it says in verse twenty four. And Joseph said to his brothers, here's how you die. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. This is a great summary. This is how you die. I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore Abraham, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He says, I'm about to die, but it's not about me. Did you catch that? I'm about to die, but it's not about me. He did not have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. I'm about to die and the whole, basically, I saved the world. You know, I mean, the grain's here because of me. Woe are you because of me. No, he says, I'm about to die. And there's another, but God. He'll visit you. Oh, I'll camp on that here in just a few minutes. He will visit you. And he'll bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That he swore to my father, that he swore to my grandfather, that he swore to my great-grandfather. That is his perspective. I'm about to die, but God's work still moves on. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, he repeats it twice as if he doesn't want them to forget it. God will surely visit you. And you shall carry my bones from here. God is at work. Take me to my people. Joseph was a man of faith. If you could choose anything in Joseph's life, the author of Hebrews, if he could choose anything in Joseph's life to say, here's how a man lived by faith. I mean, he literally could have said, this kid... You know, in writing the Hall of Faith, he could have said this kid at age 17 lived by faith so much so that when he was sold into slavery into Egypt, he worked like no one else's business. That is how you should be a teenager. Could have said that. Teenagers or those who soon to be teenagers. He could have said this guy was such an incredible businessman that he came up with a plan. You mean it's okay to have a plan? It's a good thing to have a plan. It's a biblical thing to have a plan. And he was such a good businessman, not only did he plan for the times of feasting, but he planned for the times of famine. And not just 
the planting for the time of famine, but he planned so that during the famine we could prosper even more. He, the author of Hebrews could have said not just about teenagers, but about being a good businessman. Or he could have said, Joseph doesn't seem from the text. Now, he is not perfect. There's only one perfect person. More on him in a minute. But it doesn't seem from the text we get Joseph ever living in bitterness. Ever. Ever. And so if you're here today and you're not a teenager and you've already done some good business work, but maybe you're bitter about what, I'll say, not life, but what God has given you, go to Joseph because he's a perfect example of a guy who never got bitter and all the world gave him was slavery, false accusation, and forgetfulness. But God was at work in his life. But that's not what the author of Hebrews chose. None of those. Look what he chose. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus. God will surely visit you. Oh, he'll come and you're going to be enslaved. He didn't, probably didn't go into detail because he didn't know. You'll be enslaved for 400 years. But God will visit you. He will show Pharaoh ten miracles. He will harden his heart. And you guys will be delivered. You will see the Red Sea part. Made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Of all that he could have chosen, of the faithful life of Joseph, he chose what he said at his death. Take me to my people. Take me home. Because Abraham's there. Isaac's there. Dad's there. We just went and did his funeral. Take me there. He was a man of faith. Died in Egypt, but he said, I'm looking to the promised land. He's in a foreign country. He said, but this isn't home. Does that make sense to you and I, Christians, where Peter calls us strangers and aliens? Oh, we're looking for the new heavens and the new earth. Can I just give you an encouraging word based upon the end of this chapter? I want to give you an encouraging word based upon the end of Hebrews 11. Look at this. He goes on, he talks about Samson, he talks about other things, but in 38 he says, all these people, all these people, Samson, Barak, all these people, it says, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves and all of these. Now watch this. This is this is the you want to see how the Old Testament connects to the New Testament? All of these. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Sarah, all these Moses, it says Moses did not like the fleeting pleasures of sin, yet chose to be with his people. All of these, though commended through their faith. Did not receive what was promised. That's what, Jay, that's what Jay, Joseph was doing. I'm dying here, but take my bones to the promised land. I'm not going to see it, but I'm leaving you a legacy. All of these did not receive what was promised since God provided something better for us. You, you mean to tell me all the heroes of the faith are tied to... To you and I? Mm-hmm. 
because I didn't get the Hebrew letters to the Hebrews. It's to the Hebrews, but ultimately to the church, that is you and I. You mean to tell me God provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect? And then you get 12. What a great cloud of witnesses. So can I give you just a couple things here? Based on the fact that Joseph died in faith, not seeing the promise. Number one, I'm sure you know this. God doesn't need us. Acts 17, uh, in him we move and live and have our being. He doesn't need us. And according to these verses, let me just encourage you. The world is not worthy of you. Now, I'm not slamming the world. I'm just speaking from Hebrews. Uh, If you wanted to go back up to 38, Jason, the world is not worthy of you. God does not need you. That's what we first and foremost have to get through our head. God does not need me. And the world is not worthy of you, Christian. The world is not worthy of you. But the world needs you. They're not worthy of you. But the world needs you. The world was not worthy of Joseph. But they needed Joseph. They needed him to stay faithful, not grow bitter, and to provide for them. The world is not worthy of you, but the world needs you. And so you and I need, though we may never see the promise, though we may die in faith just like Joseph, the world needs to us to stand firm in faith, dying, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back. And that's what we'll celebrate next week. But the world, God doesn't need us, but the world needs us and the world is not worthy of us. Not at all. They have built into their mindset what they think is worthy and they, they despise Christians. Oh, they love us because they want to tolerate us and that's another sermon for another day. But the world is not worthy of you. That should, you should, I should, earlier I should have seen some heads nodding. Yes, God is completely sovereign. But God, yeah, head, and I should, I should see kind of, yeah, absolutely. God doesn't need me. The world is not worthy of me, but they need me to go forth and proclaim Jesus. That's what Joseph's. Don't bury me here. Take me home. And look what it says. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The book, the book, begins in a garden and ends in a coffin. It begins perfect. It ends with death. You're supposed to be going, well, well, there's more. Right. Look at Exodus. You're there. Just look across the page. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Those are the first four sons of Leah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Those are the last two sons of Leah and the last son of Rachel. It's kind of the bookends. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. We're not going to forget those who came through the maids, though that's not the perfect picture of marriage. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Summary statement. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But I want you to see this in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. 
so that the land was filled with them. It didn't end with Joseph. And then the people grow exceedingly strong. And if you catch, do you see those words? Something should jump off the page to you. The people of Israel were fruitful and they multiplied. Hmm. That takes me back to Genesis chapter 1. Yes, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created them male and female, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Fruitful and multiply. You mean to tell me at the end of Genesis and beginning of Exodus, we're starting to live out the creation mandate. Yes, I am. Through a certain family. And if you look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Ur of the Chaldees, and your kindred, in your father's house, to a land I will show you. So he goes to the land, and I will make you a great nation. Did he make Abraham a great nation? It was a family. Had a couple boys. Well, what do you mean? He, he, he said he was going to make him a great nation. Yes. And I'll bless you and I'll make your name great, so it will be a blessing. And then Abraham had Isaac. Isaac, he had Jacob. If I were like uh, Andrew Peterson, I'd sing the song right now. And then Jacob and his sons. And so this family becomes a multitude of families which will become a great nation. And I will bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It begins in a garden, ends in a coffin, but it starts to spread. But even if you complete the book of Exodus, we're still waiting. We get through the book of Exodus. They get saved. They go through the Red Sea. God reveals Himself. He gives the Ten Commandments. He says, here's the tabernacle. Here's how we're going to relate to each other. And not one chapter after they come out of the Red Sea. Literally, just let's imagine it. We parted the chairs, so to speak, right? And there's water up there and it's dry ground. And they went this and they saw Moses put his staff in and the water move and they walked through on dry ground. They didn't even need a mudroom. Think about it. It says their soles of their feet were dry. They get through and then the Egyptians start coming through and then all of a sudden the wheels get stuck in the mud. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. You're supposed to read that in Exodus and go, that is really cool. Dry ground, muddy ground. That's kind of like a miracle. And besides keeping the waters at bay, as millions of people walk through. And then it comes back crashing down. It comes crashing down and they see the death of their enemies. And they're saved, literally saved. And what do they do? One chapter later. Ah, man, those leeks and onions in Egypt are really, really good. You brought us out into this desert to kill us. Did you see Moses? No, I didn't. So much so that he gets angry and he strikes the rock. He can't even enter the land. And then you get this years of wander. You get the Levitical 
laws, and then you get this years of wandering, and then now they're on the plains of Moab, and Moses gives five sermons. You're going into the promised land. And in Joshua, they go in and they conquer the land. Look at the end of Joshua 24:32. As for the bones of Joseph, back in Genesis 50, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the peace of the land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. So they go through all of this and they're carrying these bones and they bury him. But he's still dead. Something, yea, someone greater than Joseph is here. Go back to that phrase in Genesis 50. Twice, he says it in 24. He says it again in 25. God will visit you. God will surely visit you. And he did. And so you go through Exodus, you go through Leviticus, you go through Numbers, you go through Deuteronomy. You see Joshua, his bones are buried. You get into the book of Judges and it's the cycle of sin. The people rebel. God gives them over. They cry out. He provides a judge. Six times you just go through this cycle. And in the middle of that, in the times when the judges judge, there's Ruth. Great story. Then you want the people, want a king like the nations, which God said they shouldn't. But now that they would, in Deuteronomy, he gave provisions. And so you get 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles. Then you get all the prophets calling them back. They still need somebody to come. They still need God to surely visit them. Look at John 1.14. It should be up there. And the Word, I'll just go back. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is Jesus Christ. And the Word became flesh. And look at that. He dwelt among us. He literally tabernacled among us. He literally came for a short stay. He came for a V-word visit. It wasn't permanent. That's why they have the tabernacle. The tabernacle wasn't permanent. It kept moving. It kept going. Eventually, he had the temple. But here he says, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. God visited His people. That's called the first advent. Glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you know what they did to Him? Acts 2, 22-24. Men of Israel. This is the nation. The nation that came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph who are looking for the promise. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, you've seen this. This Jesus, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They did, the, Luke didn't, not Luke, my son, but Luke, the author of Acts, didn't call me. I would have put but God here, but that wouldn't. I mean, that's just for my sermon purposes. You did this. Twenty four. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
You could have said in Acts 2, you meant it for evil, people of Israel. You meant it for evil, Pilate. You meant it for evil, Romans. You meant it for evil, all of you who hated Jesus and didn't want to see, submit yourself and follow someone. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He has visited His his people. Amen? He has visited His people, as Joseph said, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And here's the greatest news of all. He's coming back. He's coming back. And the Bible, we just got through with the first book of the Bible. Let's look at the last couple verses of the Bible. He who testifies to these things surely says, I am coming soon. And John rightly says, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, all these little promises in this little book. You know what makes Genesis so fascinating? Is it, it is such a picture of the life we live today. It's not just something years ago. It is a picture of life today. Creation. Rebellion. A promise. A people. Ends with death. But it ends with people dying in faith. Saying, you know what? I'm getting ready to go. But I will guarantee you this. God will surely visit you. Bury me in faith. He's coming back. That's how I want to end. I'm going to outlast you, Lord willing. But should I not, on my deathbed, you'll be holding my hand along with other people. We've talked about that. And I will say, I'm about ready to die. But God is coming back. So you move on in faith. You move on in faith. Though we have not seen the promise. We will see Him one day. Father, this is Your Word. This is Your book. Thank You for the book of beginnings. Ends with death because we are awaiting something greater, something more. Thank You for the rest of the Bible that paints a perfect picture of the anticipation of Jesus Christ, the manifestation of Him in the Gospels, the explanation of Him in the epistles. And we wait the day of His revelation. Pray for Your grace upon us as we go this week. Might we be humble that You do not need us. Might we be confident that the world is not worthy of us, but the world needs us to share the good news and to die in faith. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.